invite you to pray with me. God of love, we come together to continue to hear a word of hope. To hear words that perhaps resonate with our hearts. Or just to be in your presence. However we come, we pray that you might speak to us through the softness of your voice. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. This morning, many of us come with a mixture of emotions, I'm sure. Some of us have been devastated by news of loss in Maui and Lahaina, just at the sheer significance of the events and the life and the property. Others of us perhaps know someone dear to us that perhaps lost their life, their home, where they grew up. Others still know the Aina and the history of the land. Others might not have read the news very much and came in this morning wondering what I'm talking about. Read the news. We come with mixtures of emotions. And sometimes when we come to this place, a sacred place, and we hear these words of old, we wonder what sort of words they might have for us this day. And here I'm more convinced than ever than the, the words of the Bible and the people of God speak truth to us, and not the sort of truth that answers all of life's mysteries, but the sort of truth that resonates with our souls, that connects to where we are and how God wants us to see the world and to perceive it. And so no matter where you are and the emotions that you bring this morning, whether they're grieving or whether they're neutral, we come together to hear. We come together to pray. And I'm well aware that sometimes when devastation and crisis happens in the world, people come to church for the first time asking a question, or the first time in a long time, why? Why this happened? If you came here to hear an answer of why, I hope I don't disappoint you too deeply. Because unfortunately, why is not an answerable question in times of loss. Instead, what we can do is we can remember that God's people have been there before. And we can remember by the people of Israel in this story, this song of lament. God had taken God's people out of bondage of slavery, and they led them out to fulfill this promise that God had made to them, that I'll give you a land, a place where we'll be flowing with milk and honey, and there you'll be able to live out the promise that God had given to God's ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the promise that they will fulfill, they'll be fruitful and multiply and be a blessing to all of the earth, and all of that was contingent upon this land they were to be given, this place. And so for 40 years, they carried around the Ark of the Covenant, the holiness of God with them as they wandered through the wilderness, 40 years longing for the place that they'll be able to call their home where God will reside and they can come together and then they can worship. 
And after the trials and tribulations of the wandering in the desert, finally God led them through to the promised land, and they were able to inhabit it. With the grand story of David and Goliath and conquering whatever obstacle is before them, God made it possible for God's people to be in the land and to live out this promise. And so there they were in the golden years with King David and following with the wisdom of King Solomon. And so we think of the story of God's people and God's kingdom as that. But that was a blip in the history of God's people. Because it wasn't too much longer after King Solomon that this empire, the Assyrian Empire, started building its power in the north. And Israel, the nation, had divided. And it was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the Assyrian Empire came in and took out the northern empire. And so all that was left was Judah and Jerusalem and the people that were worshiping God in this holy place that they had built, the land, but it was divided. It was a half kingdom, but it was a kingdom nonetheless. And they lived in that time for some years with some growing tensions until the Babylonian Empire started to come in, or the Neo-Babylonian Empire came in. And they came in. And they didn't just come in. They came in and they destroyed everything. They took over the land. They laid ruin to the temple. The holy place, the place where God resided, is what the psalmist was lamenting in the scripture this morning. That in the holy of holies, they had put up new emblems. They had desecrated the place. And to make it even worse, they sent out anyone who had any sort of influence out of the country, sent them to Babylon, to this thing called the Babylonian exile, because the Babylonians were not unwise, and they knew that if the elites of the community, the priests, the scribes, the politicians, the aristocrats, if they were to go out and start learning the new habits of Babylon, eating their food, marrying their wives, sooner or later, the culture and identity of Israel would be gone. And all that were left were the laborers in the vineyards to work the fields. And I say all of this because we come at different places in response to the devastation of Maui and of Lahaina. For some of us, we're grieving just the loss, right? Like the, it's, it's like as if the fire of Babylon has come in and devastated an entire community that's so close. I've lived here for seven years, and some of you know my journey of kind of learning more and more. And so this morning I, about Hawaii and its people and this place, Lahaina, I think is important to us to know. That some of us are grieving not just because of the loss, but some in our community and throughout the Hawaiian community are grieving because of the sacred space, the place that was Lahaina. 
I did not know, to be honest. Despite many, reading many books, I must have glossed over it that Lahaina was the site of the first capital of the unified Hawaiian kingdom in the early 18th or well, 19th century. For 50 years, it was the place where Native Hawaiians could rally themselves around as a, a kingdom. They planted a banyan tree that had been there for 150 years. They have the stories and the memories of a place not too dissimilar from the Israel people thinking of the sacredness of the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so when a fire comes and destroys, it doesn't just come and destroy things. It doesn't just come and bring devastation to lives. There's a loss that people in our community are experiencing that goes deeper than things and even individuals. It cuts to the heart of what it means to be a community. And, you know, I hope I don't get too political on us, but what I've learned over the years of being in Hawaii is the ways in which Europeans have treated Native Hawaiians. And not too dissimilar from the Babylonian Empire that came in and sent them away so they would forget their culture, their habits, their language. When the annexation of Hawaii happened, we made speaking Native Hawaiian illegal in the schools. And I say this on top of, what is Friday? Does anyone know what Friday is? If you're new to the island, you might be thinking, Friday is the day we have school. <laughs> you are mistaken. It is one of our random 12 holidays. Not random, but meaningful 12 holidays that come up right throughout the year. And this one is Statehood Day on Friday. So in the wake of a sacred place for Native Hawaiians being desecrated, we're now reminding that community of the annexation and of taking. Another fact I did not know is that, you know, when we voted to become a state in Fai'i, the public news and what was in the newspaper was kind of giving the options. Do you want to stay a territory or do you want to become a state? Well, in 19, there was a decree that the United Nations put together that in 1960, when we become a state, when we vote to become a state, 1959, right? In 1960, the United Nations declared that all of these indigenous kingdoms were to be given back by their colonizing empires. So nations like Hawaii and nations throughout the globe were set in 1960 to attain their autonomy by the United Nations. And so when we asked the Hawaiian people to vote, we said, do you want to stay a territory? Do you want to become a nation? We never shared with them that if they chose to not become a state, they would be a kingdom again. By default, they would have had it. And friends, I don't know the answers of what Hawaii should be about being sovereign and not sovereign. I am not trying to say that we need to fix this in some certain way or not. What I'm trying to communicate to us is the grief that people in our community are feeling. And without knowing it, 
which I said this week I did not know Lahaina was the capital, right? I, in my own ignorance, did not know either. But without knowing it, we cannot support. We can send all the goods we want, although we'll get to that in a minute, but the way that we can support is to learn and to listen. I was a chaplain at Wake Med Hospital in North Carolina when I was in divinity school, and chaplains at that particular hospital had this uh, unique, come to find out, um, role within the trauma center of calling families of trauma patients and being the first person that sees them in the hospital. And then we immediately go from there into the waiting room. So the crisis that happened and the trauma that they had experienced, there we were as chaplains to be with them. And what I learned during that experience of being a chaplain in a trauma center was how difficult it is to walk with someone who has experienced trauma. Because I'm a fixer. I like to have answers. I want to tell people that things are going to be okay. I want to pray that prayer with them and says, God's healing in the name of Jesus Christ. You have stood up and watch them stand up and walk out the hospital. But oh boy, would that be poorly advised when we don't even know the problem that the surgeons are exploring, let alone the path to recovery. We were under strict advice from the doctors and the chaplains that you cannot tell them things will be okay, that you cannot even share with them what is happening to them in this moment. Because although I was there in the room to help get contact information and I saw the crisis, I was not there making the decisions about what sort of surgery was to come next and what they were going to tackle first and not. So I was literally in the room empty-handed. Or so it felt. And I learned there that the greatest gift we can be to people experiencing trauma is to be a non-anxious presence with them. The greatest gift we can be is to not be overwhelmed by our inability to fix the situation because, friends, if my son or my daughter was in the hospital after a trauma, I would have the anxiety of wanting to fix that situation. So to have someone in the room that can hold a space for that without being overwhelmed is a gift in itself. So if you find yourself this day not experiencing pain, be a non-anxious presence in the lives of someone in our community that is. That is a gift. And friends, if you find yourself grieving here, one of the greatest hopes of our Christian faith, for me at least, is that we have this God who does not, in my opinion, believe we must filter ourselves before coming to God. That here we have in the psalmist, what was the opening line in the devastation of Israel? How long will you forget us, O oh God? That our God gives us the opportunity to bring our grief 
and not, you know, say the right words, but to bring our grief as it is. And God is that non-anxious presence, willing to take our sorrow, our pain. And so if you find yourself grieving, you do not need to move past that grief now. You do not need to filter that grief in your prayers, in your journaling, in your communication to God. That you can be you even in the midst of loss and grief. And the last advice that I have for working with those who have experienced pain and trauma, we can't fix it. We can't. As much as we want to fix the problem and the pain right now, the loss is the loss. A preaching professor always reminded our students at Duke, Bree can attest to this, you never move to Easter without mourning the loss of Good Friday. That we mustn't move too fast to the hope that's there. Even if we can see it, even if we can hold it, we must not move other people too quickly to move beyond that place of pain and hurt. It's the trite responses that do the most damage, isn't it? It's us trying to, to fix the problem or to move them to hope. We say things like, oh, don't worry, God has a plan for all of this, and it'll, it'll work out. Or, don't worry, this is just temporary and in the long run, right? Or, even worse, is God never gives us anything more than we can handle. All phrases that people say to give us hope and to strength amidst it. But the phrase is, try to fix the problem before the grief has happened. Job, I talked about a few weeks ago, loses everything in his story. Story of a biblical character who loses his farm, his children, so much of his life is gone, and his friends show up in his grieving time in the Bible and do all the wrong things. They tell him why it happened and what Job had done wrong and how Job should be responding and, you know, perhaps fixing his wife who was cursing God. You know, doing those things that everyone should do. When what Job needed during his time of grief was someone to listen, was space to grieve. And friends, this is not isolated to the people of Lahaina and Maui. This is dealing with the pain of life in general. Because some of us in the trauma of others' experiences re-experience that in our own lives, from our own childhoods, from our own pains. Some of us are in this room feeling the feelings I'm talking about, nothing to do with Maui at all. Perhaps it's the loss of a loved one, it's a relationship.
And there is space for us to grieve. And that's what we do together is we hold that space in a non-anxious presence and we say God is willing to take that grief and that sorrow. And we stand with one another and we don't tell them what they need to know. We listen but because perhaps, just perhaps, there's more to the story than we knew. So when our native Hawaiian friends or people that have lived in the islands their whole lives say the pain of Lahaina, it's not just, oh, we missed that tourist spot. It was so cute. That it goes deeper. And if we don't understand, listen to why. And then let's not try to fix, especially in the ways that we want to. You know, Dara Grant, who's in the back, and I'm going to have, have her uh, point her out later in the service, is our disaster response coordinator for the islands of Hawaii, for the United Methodist Church. And so everyone had been texting me and been saying, you know, what are we going to do? And just kind of like one of those moments, right, when like, you didn't even, I didn't even realize how bad things had happened. And, you know, I was talking to Auntie Sue, and Sue was like, you know, it's just so devastating. I was like, I, I didn't checked the news recently. I just saw on Facebook there was a fire, but I didn't realize it had like, you know, it, what happened had happened. And so all of a sudden we're like all trying to figure out and immediately everyone's like, God, we got to get going. We got to do something. We got to help it. We have to do it. Well, one of the things that Dara will tell you about in training for disaster response is assessments and listening to the actual needs is one of the first steps. And so she was on the call with all sorts of different volunteer agencies, with VOAB, with the Salvation Army, with the Red Cross. And one of the things that they have said has been said in our communications, what they need most right now is money. And that's hard for us because we want to do something. We want to help, right? We want to fix it. We want to give them the canned goods. We want to give them the blankets. We want to do all the things that we want to do because we know that they need it. We think that they need it. They might need it. But one of the things that Dara is advising us is to wait. And although it's uncomfortable to help others the way they need it because we want to fix the problem, again, don't move to Easter too quickly. Listen for the need that's there, the collaboration that's happening amongst people that are working and have been trained Working with a friend through crisis or trauma is listening and knowing the needs. Helping to identify what they need, not what you think they need. And that together as we listen and together as we grieve, God's hope will come. I have the water here. And I left the baptism from, our, from the baptismal waters. And behind us are the flowers from Noni Kazi's funeral. At every funeral, we have the baptismal font that reminds us that though in life we experience death, the hope of a risen God that has defeated it is still with us. If you cannot hold the hope of being submerged in the water and raising it up, we will hold it with you. If your friend cannot 
hold that hope. Let's hold it for them. Don't tell them. Hold it in your heart and make space for them. And trust that just as Jesus raises from the dead, life is always, always available for God. That when nothing existed but chaos of the waters, God brought forth life and peace. So if you feel that for your life, you can grieve and will hold the hope for you and with you. I invite you to pray with me. God of love, you could have come to fix our problems. But instead, you came in Christ to be with us. You could have, in Christ, overthrown the Roman Empire and created a new kingdom. But instead, you became a servant who lived a life of love and kindness and compassion. So in our loss, we pray you would be with us. We pray you would be with our friends, our neighbors, with those who grieve this day. And together as a community, whether we're holding hope or grieving loss, we lift it up to you and trust that you can take all of the pain. So bring us comfort. And just like with the waters of the deep, breathe your peace over us. Amen.